Terrible Thanks for Asking is brought to you by you. You did it. Good job. We are public media, which means that a big part of the way we get to keep doing what it is we do is that you and people like you decide, hey, I'm going to donate a couple dollars every month to fund the work that you're listening to right now. I'm going to support by donating every month. If you are interested in supporting making this show, you can go to ttfa.org slash donate. A quick warning that this episode will contain spoilers for previous episodes. So if you're new here, just know that. Spoilers are coming. I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. Here's what happens at the end of nearly every interview we do. Do you hear my stomach? Oh, my God. <clears throat> wow. It was so loud and gurgly. Good Lord. I'm, I'm fucking starving, dude. Is 17 minutes long enough? It takes like four to walk to the taco place. Oh, my God. We got to eat. What time? What, when's our next thing? Could you just hear my stomach? Okay. Do you think if I can eat two tacos in four minutes, does that give us enough time? Is Taco Place still open or does it close at two? Yeah, no, it's still open. Okay. Okay. Yeah, mainly lunch, lunch requests, okay, and stomach noises because we talk with people for several hours at a time, sometimes multiple times, sometimes back to back to back to back, often in separate studios. My producer, Hans, and me here in Minnesota in Studio 3A, if it's available, and them wherever they are. And in that time, they tell us some of the details from the hardest moments in their lives. And we sit with them and we listen and we record everything and they open up and they share and we catch it all on our devices. We is generous. Hans does that part. And then it's over. And we awkwardly say goodbye for anywhere between two to 12 minutes. It's called the Minnesota Goodbye. It never ends. Look it up. And then we disconnect or we are disconnected forcefully by a producer on the other side. I'm not angry about it. And Hans and I desperately try to jam a meal down our throats because we tend to record right through lunch and afternoon snack time. And wherever they are, the people we've just interviewed, they are in their studio somewhere in the world. And then they're alone. Just them in a soundproof room with their memories and all of those feelings we just brought up. And then they get up and they open that big, heavy, soundproof door. And they walk out and they go back to their car or their bus or their bike and back to their life. Over the next few days and weeks, sometimes even months, Hans and I will work with that story that they trusted us with. We'll go over it and over it and over it. All of the words that they said, working through all of these moments from their past to uncover a story, a place to start, some revelations and a place to end it. 
And while we do that, these people keep living their lives. They keep getting up every day, laughing at things, crying at other things, or the same things that happens. They eat meals and meet people and lose touch, and they think many, many thoughts. And when we finally publish what they said, they've had a lot of lunches and cries and thoughts and are, in a way, different people than they were in that soundproof room weeks or months before. Because our stories at TTFA talk about moments, and our stories end because podcasts have to end unfortunately, but our stories are just little parts of bigger lives, lives that keep going. So today, here's where we're going with this. Today, we are going somewhere. We're going back and also forward. We're going back to talk to some of the people we've talked to before about everything that has happened in their lives since the last time we spoke. Once again, there will definitely be some spoilers if you haven't listened to every episode. So, okay, here we go. Okay, now we're recording. Um, Tell the people who you are. I'm Milena. And... What grade are you in? Oh, I'm in sixth grade. Sixth. Sixth. Milena was the star of episode 21, called Childhood. Her sister, Jaka, was one of our interns here at TTFA, and she sat down with Milena to get us an update. Um, so, when you were interviewed for TTFA, what were you talking about? About my dad and immigration and, yeah, mostly about my dad. And your anxiety. And my anxiety. Milena was 10 when she talked with us on her episode, and at that time, there were a lot of links between her anxiety and her father. Her dad is an undocumented immigrant, and he had recently been picked up by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And that sudden disappearance and the uncertainty of his future, of his ability to be home with their family, really took a toll on Milena. She worried about him the whole time he was gone, And he did come home, but there were still a lot of steps he needed to go through to be able to stay legally. How is your dad now? Good. He's going through the immigration process, but he's good. So what does it mean for him to be going through the immigration process? Like, what's happening? Like, he's going to be soon sent to Mexico, and he's going to hopefully get his papers there. Milena's dad has a work permit now, which is more than what he had then. He's going to be going back to Mexico to complete some paperwork and spend some time outside of the U.S. so that he can be considered for a green card. It's still an uncertain path, but having a path at all has helped Milena feel less anxiety about his future. One of the other things that was causing anxiety for Milena was her dad's alcoholism. When he was drinking, he would disappear for several days and then come back and promise each time that he'd get better, he'd do better. At 10, Milena was working hard to understand her two dads, as she called him. And now he is doing better. He's relapsed like June, but that was like for three days. 
Yeah, but yeah, he's good after that. How do you know when he's doing well and when he's not doing well? You can just see it in his mood. You can just see how different he acts. So immigration stress and alcoholism, those weren't the only sources of stress when Milena was 10. She worried a lot in general about school. I mean, just basically everything. Being a kid can be really stressful. Milena had created an anxiety box for herself to try to cope. She had all sorts of calming things in there, things she liked, things that made her feel better, little note cards she had written to herself about calming down. So these days, Milena is still working on how to manage her anxiety every day. I just usually, if I get like anxiety, it's because like for school and stuff, because school can get frustrated. So in the episode, you talked about how you get really anxious wanting to do well on everything and wanting to not fail anything and always wanting to understand things. Do you still feel that way? Yes, and it's hard because, like, sometimes I don't understand things and I can't do it well for school and stuff. And so it, like, kind of puts pressure on me because I think I, I always have to do it, like, 100%. So, yeah. How are you doing in school? Good. It can get frustrating and I can get, like, not put it priority. So, yeah, sometimes it can be really hard. Because I don't put it, like, first thing when I get home. And I don't ask the teachers questions because I get too scared. Why are you scared to ask questions? Because I don't want to sound stupid. Like, I don't want to sound like I... Because, like, it's going to sound like I wasn't paying attention, which I was. Well, I try, and then I get lost in too many words, and then I get frustrated, and yeah. Marina, how are you? I'm good. Just good? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. (laughs) For everyone asking if we are going to be making the Childhood Podcast, which is... (laughs) I mean, we can barely make this podcast. Just, Just take it easy on us. Just be happy. Be happy we're doing this, all right? It's like a maybe, probably not, maybe. I mean, no. No, that was nice, though. It was a nice idea. Courtney and Jay are the amazing parents of Bruce. Bruce has something called Fragile X Syndrome. It's a genetic condition that means that Bruce will always developmentally be a young child. Physically, though, he's a big guy, which is why his parents lovingly call him Baby Huey. When we published their episode, Bruce was nine. Now he's 11. And that big guy had a really big year this year. Bruce developed sleep apnea, really bad sleep apnea. He would stop breathing at night. Um, So we took him to an ear, nose, and throat doctor and the solution was to have his tonsils removed. Okay, that's that's doable. It's just a little stay in the hospital, and then his breathing would improve, and he would sleep well, and also part of the recovery, as I understand it, is that you eat ice cream? We had tried to prepare him by 
watching videos on Sesame Street about Big Bird going to the hospital. Yeah, yeah. that's actually one of his favorite videos. But, uh, so we tried to explain to him, you know, you're going to be in the hospital like Big Bird on Sesame Street. They went into surgery thinking it would be a quick procedure, just in and out. So Bruce went into surgery and, yeah, he came out. As soon as we saw him, we knew that it was going to be really bad. You know, his hands were tied down because he was trying to pull out the IV, and they had it wrapped in a diaper and tape. And by the way, he had a, he had a breathing tube attached to him for a while at first. So I said, "Well, we need to explain to him what's going on so that we can untie him," because I think that was making him really upset. Courtney talked with Bruce, and that did seem to calm him down. We had to keep the IV covered up, but he stopped trying to pull it out. Courtney and Jay stayed by Bruce's side 24 hours a day. As more nurses and doctors came and went, Courtney and Jay had to keep telling everyone to communicate directly with Bruce. I think the perception was that he would not understand because he was mentally challenged. So people would turn to us and tell us, but then they wouldn't tell him. And so we had to try to change that perception and say, look, he's a kid like any other kid. You need to tell him what's happening and and tell us what's happening. And then suddenly everything escalated. Bruce's oxygen levels dropped to around 50 percent. He was rushed to the intensive care unit. And then... One minute his heartbeat was like 99, and then all of a sudden it jumped to 256. And the team of doctors just happened to be in the room, and we're all looking at the monitor like, what the heck? Everybody drops what they're doing and grabs the grabs a little the crash card or whatever you call it, and um, they had to put, put the paddles on him and give him a medicine and. He didn't understand what was going on. And, you know, it's just that part that, it's so important to have an advocate, especially if you have a disability. And that's if anything we learned, we definitely learned that that week. Bruce spent five days in the ICU. The doctors had mentioned before the surgery that it might not work, that taking out his tonsils might not fix the sleep apnea. But... The procedure actually worked. He sleeps much better at night now. So. And not only that, but they were able to lower the dose of his medicine. It's the medicine that has caused him to gain a lot of weight over the years that gave him that baby Huey effect. And that has had ripple effects. His communication has improved a lot. And he's saying a lot more words. And he has a lot more personality. Yeah, he does, yeah. We're kind of seeing a whole other side to Bruce that we haven't seen before. I'll tell you something, is he whines. <laughs> I've never heard him whine before. And he whines. And he laughs a lot more, too, spontaneously. Yeah, yeah he will. He'll start laughing about something, and you're kind of wondering what he's laughing about, but something was funny going, so. And Bruce likes to be helpful. He has a neighbor who lives down the street who uses a wheelchair, and every time the bus comes to pick that neighbor up from his house, Bruce is there to help. He actually watches out the window and waits for this man to come out, and he pushes his wheelchair on the bus. And then when he comes home, he watches, and he'll go out, and he'll help them and assist them in the house. Yeah, it's kind of cute how he he does that. 
Of course, you know, his wheelchair is one of those automatic ones. You know, you push the button and it goes. But Bruce will get behind him and, you know, think he's pushing him and he's trying to help him. And uh, it's great to see. I mean, Bruce loves the guy and loves, loves thinking that he's helping him. Yeah, that's a whole other side we haven't seen. Yeah, again. yeah, definitely. One of the reasons we originally spoke with Courtney and Jay was because of the isolation they felt raising Bruce. He had never been invited to a play date or a birthday party. He didn't have any friends. And that part of the interview killed me, absolutely killed me. And I will tell you right now, I thought to myself as we were recording that interview, it's not forever. We'll release this episode and hundreds of thousands of people will hear it. And Courtney and Jay will be swooped up by a community of people who will play with Bruce and invite him to birthday parties. So, did that change? That's pretty much the same. Yeah. I hate that. That's probably my number one thing. I would love to see that happen. I would love to see him you know, have a relationship with someone like, like the neighbor two doors down. Because um, he does, he is a cool guy to hang around. Jane Courtney still feel isolated as parents. Without playdates for Bruce, there aren't a lot of spaces for them to bond with other parents. I mean, if anything, I'm feeling I feel more isolated as he gets older, and the differences become more apparent. And I feel like I have to explain his behavior all the time. Yeah. Like when I'm in a restaurant or a store, now that he's 11 and he's getting really tall, sometimes I would, I'm a sense maybe even a little fear in people. You know, I sense that from some of the staff in the hospital, like worried that he was going to hit them or do something, you know, because he would, he would, he would lash out sometimes. And I'm like, he's just doing that because he's scared, right. you know, and he can't communicate that he's scared. So he might try to lash out and scratch him. You know, and I point, I said, I, you know, I cut his nails real short so that if he did get you, it wouldn't to minimize your damage. But I mean, you know, just understand he's not trying, he's not like th- trying to hurt you. He's just acting out what he's feeling. But their little family, Courtney and Jay and Bruce, they have fun on their own. They make their own fun. Since their episode aired, they all got to go someplace magical together. We took Bruce to Disney World. Yes, Disney World. They went to Disney World. I am so jealous. Jay and Courtney had a lot of prep work to do to make it happen, but it was great. It was all worth it. I was really pleased with how he handled it all. Oh, yeah. He, he came through like a champ. You know, he got on the plane. We thought he was going to freak him out, and it really didn't. Uh, we got down there and got to the hotel and, you know, went on to all the parks and things. And he, you know, like I said, we had a wheelchair for him because of the long distances that he'd have to walk. But um, he had a good time. We had, he, a, we he had, had a great time, actually. He enjoyed himself. Because Disney is wonderful and their parks cater to basically everyone, 
There were rides where Bruce could sit in his wheelchair. Sometimes he was a little hesitant to get off the ride. Oh, and people were, you know, we held up a few rides. We held up a few, yeah. But people were very patient. There were shows that Bruce could see with all sorts of special effects from movies that he'd seen, movies he loves. His face just lit up with like such emotion. Like he he saw fireworks for the first time, and I was overwhelmed at the fact and his emotion for it. Well, he really got into the Little Mermaid show. Oh gosh, he loved that. He was. You know, they cut the lights down low, and it's like a laser light show kind of thing. And they make it rain, and there's bubbles, and he was just like, wow. I mean, and you could just see him, like, he started, like, bouncing in his seat, and he was just, like, just super into it. I mean, this his face was just, I don't know, it brought me to tears. I had to, like... I don't know. Like, yeah, that was, hold it back. I thought I was going to lose that it a couple was, times. Yeah, that was neat to see. I was like, oh, I was just so happy that he was happy. You know, I would. I mean, well, I'm not having a good time, and I worried the whole time I was planning the trip that he would not enjoy it. But I was so happy. He just loved those shows. And I loved hearing again from Jay and Courtney and Bruce. I wish them a very, very magical year and a play date. We'll be back soon with more updates. Um, Senior producer Hans Butow, I have a question for you. Yes? Do you donate to our show? Wait, to our show? Yeah. TTFA.org slash donate. Uh, I mean, I donate to shows. Do you donate to our show? I mean, I donate to a lot of shows. I donate to um, shows I like, shows that I think should be in the world, but don't listen to every episode of. So I donate to a lot of shows. Okay. Honestly, I'm asking one question. Do you donate to our show? Um... I do support our show because I feel weird asking other people to support our show if I'm not. Is that weird? No, it's not weird. Plus, you get an amazing t-shirt. I did get a (laughs) t-shirt. Okay, so you don't support our show. What could I do to get you to support our show financially? Well, I mean, like, why do you think people should donate? I like to support things that add value to the world, things that add value to my day. Yeah. Something that you think is valuable. Yeah, it's something that I think is valuable. Something that means something to you. Yeah. So if I was going to donate... If you were going to donate to our show, which would get you a t-shirt... I could do this on a monthly donation or a one-time... You do a monthly, like, recurring donation. You could donate, you know, all your money to us at once. I don't even think you would need to discuss that with your wife. I think you could just do it. Just do it? Okay. You would just do that. So where do I go? You would go to ttfa.org slash donate. Is there, like, all the money I have button I can push? There's something like that that just says, like, transfer all my funds. Yeah, I believe in you more than... Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you don't donate to the show. I do. I'm a better person. Settled it once and for all. If you want to be a good person uh, like me and not like senior producer Hans Buto, you can donate to the show at ttfa.org slash donate. So we're back. Kelly and Steele were two survivors of the Route 91 Harvest Festival shooting in Las Vegas in 2017. 
It was the largest mass shooting so far in American history, and the year anniversary of that shooting passed in October 2018. It's strange to think of that as a milestone, because how do you mark one year since a mass shooting that you were in that you survived? For Kelly and Steele, who we talked to in episode 30, they debated how they wanted to handle that anniversary. Kelly and Steele had been talking to their therapist leading up to October 1st, and she was helping them prepare for it because they weren't sure how they would feel. Kelly's birthday is October 2nd, the day after the shooting, so they had already celebrated that a week early. On October 1st, 2017, Kelly and Steele had been hiding under tables and running from gunshots. On October 1st, 2018, they went to work, tried their best to have a normal day, came home, turned off the TV, and opened a bottle of wine. And then we just enjoyed each other's company that night. And it, we didn't really, like the shooting, it was at night, and I think we just put on a movie, and it was a funny movie, and we just didn't think about it the rest of the night because I didn't think that it would be... I don't think it would have helped. Like, I, I don't want that day to be a terrible day for the rest of my life. I want to be able to look back and be like, that was a terrible night, but be grateful for our lives since then and everything good that's come from it. I think we've had kind of a lifestyle change, um, not because we're trying to hide from situations like that. It's more like it doesn't bring us that joy that it used to going to a club or something like that. We used to do that all the time with our friends, and I was hoping to get back to that place, and now it's kind of like I don't need those things in my life, and I don't want to put myself in situations that I'm very uncomfortable in. More than a year from the shooting, Kelly's panicked thoughts happen less frequently now. Her day-to-day life feels more doable, but that panic is still there. It can still flare up. In the big moments... I still have a hard time doing things that I know are crowded and exciting and I expect it the whole time I'm at something like that and it's almost like I'm just trying to step back from that and I don't I don't want to feel uncomfortable the whole time and I'm in that situation so I avoid them and the panic can flare up in the little moments too even if it's not as intense as it was a year ago I still have those moments when I'm at the store or I'm in a crowded area. I'll feel uncomfortable and I'll think about Route 91 for like a split second. And I think before um, I kind of would like sit in that moment for longer. Um, And now it's kind of, it doesn't not pop into my head, but I think I've handled it better. I just kind of talk myself down from getting too anxious about situations, um, it, it doesn't knock me down as hard as it used to. 
But even with her work to keep the anxiety under control, there are plenty of reasons that it stays in the front of her mind, because there are constant reminders nearly every day there are more mass shootings. Some don't make the news. Others are tragedies for a couple days. I don't try and read a lot of the details about it. When shootings happen, I'll kind of read what happened, but when all the other stories come out, like about the people who died or their families or how they reacted to it, um, I I can't, like, I'm, I don't feel like I'm strong enough to hear their stories or read about them because it brings up so much of Route 91 for me. I think about how they were feeling that moment they heard it starting. And I, it's just like I'm feeling all of it all over again. And some mass shootings happen closer to Kelly than she feels comfortable. Like the November shooting at the Borderline Bar and Grill in Thousand Oaks, California, where more than 10 people were killed. That's very, very close. Even Thousand Oaks shooting. Sorry. Um, I just, like, I could have seen us going out line dancing one night, maybe, but, like... That is such a normal thing, and it was a crowded night, and it was one of their most popular nights, and it just reiterated to me how unsafe I feel in those situations because I honestly, I expect that to happen all the time. Everyone tells me, like, oh, well, that won't ever happen again. And, like, I know there were people at that bar that night who were at Route 91. And it breaks my heart, and it just, like, um, it's, like, all of those insecurities I have about going out and about being around a lot of people, it just, like, keeps getting reinforced. So Kelly and her boyfriend, Steele, are working on their anxiety and they're doing what they need to do to take care of themselves. Therapy, controlling their environment as much as they can, spending time with each other. And when we asked her how she was doing, all of that was making a difference. I would say I am doing really well. Um, I think before it was kind of like day-to-day, and I think now it's more of, like, a week-to-week basis, (laughs) or I'll be good for a while, and then something happens, and I'm a little iffy, but I think overall, like, we're both living our lives and enjoying them more, and we're really happy.
Hi everyone, it's Megan from the episode Perfectly, where I talked about the loss of my husband, Clark, in the emergency room where I work as a physician. I was asked to provide everyone with an update about how things are going. So I actually think most days I would probably say that I'm pretty good. It's been about almost two years since I lost Clark. And year one is just about making it. Making it through all the firsts without without Clark and without the person you love. But year two, you've done all the firsts. And it's just about moving forward and building and finding a new life without your person. Well, in the same time, I'm trying to make sure that I do not forget my, my old life, my life with Clark. So what's new in my life? Well, I, to be honest, I haven't done any big changes. I decided to try to keep the parts of our life that we love together as the same as possible while remembering Clark, but not holding on too tight. And so I still live in the same home that we lived in with our amazing dog, Sophie. I still work at the same hospital with my same coworkers and colleagues. And I still have maintained the same friendships that I had before. The majority of people in my life have been extremely supportive of my journey into this new chapter, so to speak. And so part of that new chapter is trying to find someone new. My chapter two is actually a coworker of mine. He works with me in the emergency department. He was not there the night Clark died, which I'm thankful for. But in the same sense, he gets it. He gets the the fact that life is fragile and that crazy stuff happens to really young people for no good reason. And I, I've come to believe that that's the case for Clark. Although I still struggle with the guilt of not recognizing things and doing something sooner, I honestly think that it was just a really bad string of luck. And being with somebody who understands that has made it so much easier to move forward. He is amazingly sweet. He has the biggest heart in a person I've ever known. I know that he sees me just as a a strong woman instead of a heartbroken widow. I was definitely broken when I met him and he made me realize that I could love again and that that love could be as real and amazing as it was with Clark. And it's different 
but not in a good way and not in a bad way. It's just different. Having gone through this tragedy, I've found a way to almost be more in love with somebody that I can just appreciate him and all of his amazing parts and all of the parts that are not so amazing. But I love every piece of him so much more because of that. With this joy and happiness comes guilt. It's amazing in the fact that feeling guilty in those moments of joy reminds me how far I've come and reminds me how strong I am and how I've really overcame something that to me seems like one of the worst things a person can go through. It also makes those moments so much more amazing because of the reality of where I've been. The ability that I've gained to move forward is really just this sort of vulnerability to learn to live again and to do that in Clark's honor, so to speak. And I've sort of made that one of my vows to Clark is to make sure that every day I choose to live with joy and I choose to appreciate the people and things around me. And I think I wouldn't have had that had I not gone through what I went through. Work hasn't changed much for me. I love what I do. I love being an emergency physician. I love meeting people on sometimes their most vulnerable day. I haven't had a moment where it's where it's unhinged me. I've definitely had more of an emotional response than I did in the past when I've had a a patient die or a patient have a really bad outcome. The one I remember mostly was actually watching a mother, elderly mother, whose 30-something-year-old son was involved in a really bad car crash, and he was technically alive but brain dead, and we decided to provide him with comfort cares and allow him to donate his organs. And somehow watching the mother lose her son was extremely difficult. And it just made me think of my mother-in-law who watched her son pass away. I realized that my mother-in-law and father-in-law and and sister-in-law will never have a chapter two. There's no chapter two for a son or a sister. And I think that breaks my heart more than it breaks my heart for myself. I just, I find myself 
being much more empathetic towards anyone who's any had any sort of loss in their life. I think it's helped me have better conversations with patients and families. I think we all know that that emotional stress causes real medical problems. And it's, for me, made that part of my job a lot more satisfying. So I think that's probably about it. When I decided to share my story, I was driving home from Thanksgiving, my first Thanksgiving without Clark, and I was listening to TTFA for several hours, and each story I found some similarity with the person telling it. And it made me realize that a lot of people struggle with the why and how about how their loved one died. And I just wanted to share with people that even when you understand medicine to a high level, it can still not make sense. And so I just want to thank everyone for listening. Thanks, everyone. That was Megan from episode 26, Perfectly. We have another quick break here and then more updates. Every single day I get emails and Instagram messages and tweets from people like you who listen to our show. And I want to say thank you for that. It means a lot to me and Hans and to our guests to know that the work that we are doing matters and means something to you, to the people we make it for. It means a lot to know that the show that we care about so much is a part of your life and your experience and that it resonates with feelings that you've had or things that you've gone through, that it has helped you connect with people you love, with people that you've never even met. We're very thankful to have a group of listeners who support our show financially as well. It's huge. The public and public media is no joke. It is why we are here and why we get to keep making a podcast about difficult feelings. You can show your support for TTFA in a lot of ways, but a meaningful one is to make a donation. You can make it recurring or one time. The place to do it is at ttfa.org slash donate. That's ttfa.org slash donate. We are back with a very exciting update from our buddy Chris, who you met in episode 35. Yeah, I was born two months premature and um, uh, was not a very healthy baby um, for a long time. But um, I have cerebral palsy, which means that it's essentially a brain injury. And in my case, that's caused by the premature birth. So there are uh, muscle groups, parts of my body, my and particularly for me and my legs and back and abs and various other places that, where the muscles just don't talk to the brain as they should. And so it was sort of explained, as you might explain that to a young child, you know, your feet don't talk to your brain. Yeah. So you had good parents. <laughs> yeah. Very, yeah. Very strong parents. 
Chris grew up with that dreamy accent, and he also grew up with messages of positivity and strength, that he wasn't defined by a cerebral palsy, that despite his difficulty walking and the exhaustion, he wasn't special, he wasn't to be pitied, and he lived that mindset. Getting on with things, getting on with life. Chris got on with it until his 20s, when things were harder. Severe depression, suicidal ideation, and an attempt at dancing a traditional Irish dance that left him physically wrecked and emotionally aware that his body would always let him down, no matter how good his attitude was, no matter how he tried to just get on with it. I don't know where I fit. The problem comes that because the narrative that I had around disability growing up is one that a lot of my peers and people my age with disability in the UK have. You know, it's this very positive thing, you know, the social model, the issue isn't barriers um, in your condition, it's barriers put up by society. But that leaves you no space and no tools and no way to say, can we talk about the fact that I can't run anymore? You know, I've hit my 20s and I cannot run. I cannot do that. And I I didn't know you were allowed to feel resentment to your disability. I had never heard a disabled person say, I'm okay with my disability, but I don't like this bit and I struggle with this bit and I can be positive around what I can do and what I will try to do but there are some bits of this that are still shit because you'd like to be able to move forward and say actually it's this and I can be positive and I can be negative and those two things are not mutually exclusive and not contradictory and I can have all of these aspects of disability. So we wanted to know how Chris is getting on with his CP, or if he is, we wanted to know how his life is now. When I spoke to you in April, I was starting to talk about it, and I was still worried about what people thought. And I have, over that time, sort of found a way of expressing my own voice without being frightened of it. I've sort of reached a level of, uh, not caring about what other people think nearly as much uh, and just sort of trying to figure it out uh, rather than looking over my shoulder all the time and saying, are people going to be offended if I say that? And saying, no, actually, this is what's going on right now. So what has that meant for you? Almost as soon after the podcast aired, I got messages from... Uh, a number of people with CP saying, I get it. What you were talking about is something that I recognize and something that I wrestle with and deal with. And, you know, not even this is how I do it or this is how I rationalized it, but just we hear you. That was uh, enormously important, Um, absolutely enormously important, because I really felt that I was on an island. I really felt that I was just so isolated and so unable to talk about my identity this way because no one else uh, was presenting it this way. 
In his episode, Chris had talked about a moment in a pub when he was at university. A friend of his had looked at him and said, Chris, you really put up with a lot of shit. It was a small moment for the friend, but it meant a lot to Chris. In that moment, and since then, too. It was a stunning moment that stays with me because I was amazed that anyone had noticed. But also, I realized that I hadn't noticed because you just, you just got on with it. Chris told us that shortly after the episode came out, that friend who said that, whom Chris had lost touch with... He contacted me. Um, out of the blue, he knew it was him. He knew uh, where it was, when it was. He remembered everything. So that was incredibly moving just to make that reconnection. That was really striking, actually. That was, that was brilliant. I'm getting emotional when I was talking about it. It's, Yeah, that was big. Like Vanessa Williams, I am saving the best for last because since Chris's episode has come out, something really big and wonderful and amazing has happened. And I would like to take at least 20% credit for it, if that's okay with Hans. So I'm speaking to you from Pennsylvania right now, uh, where I'm visiting uh, my girlfriend who is a terrible girlfriend. <laughs> That's how we met. We met through the Terrible Club. Yep. Right? Okay. So the Terrible Club is the Facebook group where our listeners hang out and support each other. Emily and Chris were both members. Emily had seen Chris in the group and she thought he was cute, which he is. I remember, did I say that during our interview? or in the episode or both. Either way, not appropriate, but it's true. And when his episode came out, Emily, she just wanted to talk to him. So they started messaging each other and they talked about all kinds of existential questions. They talked about the episode. But Chris felt like there was something that just wasn't being said. At about three in the morning, I think, I called her on it. I said, there's something you came here to say, but you're not saying it. What is it? (laughs) I thought I was being so good at hiding my uh, feelings of him being cute. (laughs) I was not at all. (laughs) It's something I never thought would happen to me. I've, I've always felt a deeply unattractive person physically. I felt that as a disabled man at nearly 30 at the time I spoke to that there were things that were close to me in one of those relationships and so my automatic response was to shut that whole thing down and I'm just thinking what am I doing you know just see where this goes because why are you so self-loading that you would shut someone down like that so they each took a risk and from that point on they were a thing They talked every day for hours. Emily flew out to England to meet Chris, and they are in full-on love. Straight-up love. I'm still confused, but in the best way. Uh, It's it's incredible, and it's one of the best things that's happened to me. Yeah. You're fun. You are fun, you know. Chris and Emily are both aiming to finish up school this year. 
Chris will then be a qualified counselor who will hopefully be taking on his own clients, and they will be so lucky to have him. We have one last update for you before we go. In our Happyish Holidays 3 episode, holy cow, we've made three of those? Goodness gracious. We got to hang out with Jay, a father and a husband and son in his 40s who has stage 4 mesothelioma. Jay was just preparing to spend what might be his final Christmas with his family, and he just wanted it to be normal. Well, it was. As he said, it was wonderfully normal. And the red dicky, the traditional family gift that comes back year after year but had been lost for a while, that red dicky was located and it was successfully passed on to Jay's son, Everin, who is now the keeper of the tradition and the proud owner of a red dicky. You can see a photo of Everin and Jay and the handsome red dicky on our Instagram at TTFA Podcast. I'm Nora McInerney. I sustained an injury while recording this episode. Hans made me laugh and I spit mint tea out of my nose. Just give me some montage. Some what? Montage. Montage. They said mom towels. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know oh what they God. are, but I, I, I'll go get them if you tell me what they are. <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> that, that, my friends, is the last narration Nora ever recorded before she died. <laughs> are you okay? You're going to make it? I'll stop talking. <laughs> God, it's like on the there's it was like a neti pot. Oh my god, now my tea is like booger tea. I spit it right into the cup because I'm a champ. Well done, you want me to? I just want to record that for HR purposes. This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. We are so glad that we get to make this show for you, so thank you. Our senior producer is Hans Buto. Trying to get him to start a Hans Buto YouTube. We call it the Butube. <laughs> so we're working on it. Our assistant producer is Marcel Malakibu. He has the flu, the Maliki flu right now. So best wishes. Get better soon, buddy. And our project manager is Hannah Meacock Ross. You are the reason for the season and the season never ends because we make podcasts all dang year so thank you thank you for listening and for telling your friends about it even when they're like why would i listen to that it's called terrible thanks for asking and it's about sad stuff no thanks and then you explain it and you're like it's just a bad title just listen to it you won't hate it um thank you for doing that and for leaving reviews and for leaving comments and following us on instagram and sending us emails and truly for sharing your stories with us I would say almost every single story has come from somebody who has listened to the show at some point. That is really cool 
and really unique and something that feels very, very good for us. So thanks. Thanks a bunch. And if you can, please support the show at ttfa.org slash donate. Our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson, and we are a production of American Public Media. There's the culprit. <laughs> they brought me more tea. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs>